Bloodbath and Beyond Episode 7. I'm Casey Mitchum. And I'm Burton Cody. And uh, today, it being the month of October, we're going to talk about one of our favorite tropes in horror movies, The Mad Scientist. <laughs> today we set out a challenge we each had to think of three of our favorite movie mad scientists and we gave ourselves some artificial limitations uh first of all we couldn't name dr frankenstein not fair it's not fair he's the trope setter i mean any any mad science story goes back to frankenstein in fact more often than not mad scientists in modern day movies are referred to as dr frankensteins in or... dialogue, if nothing else. Uh, another favorite we, we weren't allowed to use was uh, Dr. Emmett Brown from Back to the Future. Great movie mad scientist. Love him to death. But his but the Back to the Future movies are neither horror nor action. Just they did, yeah. Pleasant sci-fi fantasy. Yeah, pleasant diversions. I, yeah. But, but, he, but, you know, again, another guy that would probably top our lists if he was allowed to be on here. Yes. Uh, another one, uh, we could not use... Uh, Dr. Herbert West, who we'll be talking about with Reanimator today. Another one of our favorites, but we'll get more to that later. Uh, but first, ain't... let's talk about the scientists. Yes, let's talk about who we do like and who can still follow those patterns. Uh, so, without further ado, uh, I'm going to go first. My my first favorite I'm going to name is uh, Dr. Pretorius. Now, this is technically a cheat, because Dr. Pretorius is a character from The Bride of Frankenstein. But he's uh, so memorable. He's very memorable. He has he has quite a presence. Uh, one of the things I loved most about Pretorius is just how flamboyant he is. And that goes right back to uh, director James Whale, who made Frankenstein, The Bride of Frankenstein. And James Whale was an openly gay director, and he enjoyed putting campy elements in his films. And allegedly, he told the actor Ernest Thesiger, who plays Dr. Pretorius... Uh, that he wanted him to play him as an over-the-top caricature of a bitchy, aging homosexual. and I think he accomplished that. He does. He is such a sassy, uh, scientific queen, and I love him for it. Um, you know, he has a lot of... There's a lot of scenes of him having uh, picnics inside of a crypt, for one. He's... He's amused by this. Oh, very amused by it. He's, he's very amused by himself. <laughs> he, he's constantly drinking gin or smoking a cigar and whatever his vice is that he's doing right now he'll refer to it as his one weakness that's that's the only flaw in him that i drink gin right now or this is my only flaw i smoke the cigars um but he's very manipulative he drags he drags dr frankenstein back into working with uh trying to reanimate life even though he tried to get out of that uh and just uh, just a very fun over-the-top character uh really has a lot to do with Thesiger's performance. He just brings such a... I don't know, such a presence to him. Like, just the way he the way he enters a room or stands or the faces he makes. He actually and, kind of overshadows the stars of the movie. That's Frankenstein's monster in The Bride. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, and even still, he... It's... He is the reason in these movies that The Bride is able to be created because... Where Frankenstein failed, where Doctor Frankenstein failed, uh, you know, is, was trying to find a body from a morgue, and he ends up finding a criminal brain and all that. But Doctor Pretorius has been able to breed homunculi. He has these tiny people in jars, and they act out parts. And uh, you know, one's a ballerina, and it goes back to the campy thing. He's really angry. It's like a Henry the Eighth one. Yeah, yeah, and there's a devil which he says, you know, oh, I think that has a certain resemblance to me, or do I flatter myself? You know, he, yeah, there's even a scene where he has like a mermaid in a jar, and he's like, I know it's hopelessly mundane. <laughs> but like, so, yeah, but yeah, he's even mad at the uh, the fact that his his ballerina only dances to Mendelssohn. Mendelssohn, how droll. How droll, exactly. But yeah, he's, uh, and you know, and he can grow artificial brains. So it's his idea to make the bride, and and because of his uh, his divine inspiration and in dragging uh, Doctor Frankenstein back into that life of reanimating dead material, we have one of the I would say one of the greatest horror films of all time. Uh, I certainly agree. Uh, 
It's the reason it's survived through the decades. Mm -hmm. It's had great cast of characters, but mostly I think Doctor Pretorius. Uh, my list, I well, I went I went a little sillier, and it's um it's a parody character, and not only is it a parody parody character, it's from a cartoon, Bugs Bunny one. It's the Peter Lorre evil scientist from uh, Hair Raising Hair. And he's not in it very much, but he's just so memorable to me. And it was hard to think of a mad scientist list without Herbert West or Frankenstein, to tell you the truth. Uh, there's not really a whole lot to say about him other than that he lures Bugs Bunny with a sexy mechanical bunny robot. <laughs> and he... Uh, well, he has. He also has this pink fuzzy monster. Oh, is that the is that the big red hairy guy? Yeah, it's the big hairy guy with the sneakers and the. Oh, I love him. And the fingernails. That's his creation. That's his mad science. Not a whole lot to say about him, but that it's just hilarious, and it's always made me laugh throughout the years. And it's... he's probably how people still know the Peter Lorre voice. <laughs> Pretty much, and maybe like a few of those um, old Warner cartoons where to have like. The studio actors in cartoon form. Yeah. Or like, Humphrey Bogart wants uh, Elmer Fudd to make him a rabbit sandwich or something. <laughs> but I digress. Who's who's next on your list, Casey? The next person on my list, and, uh, you know, th I, we said that Emmett Brown couldn't be on the list because his movie was neither a horror movie or an action movie. And I have to, I have to cast just a little bit of that aside and say that the next guy on my list comes from a movie that technically has horror elements in the same way that a Bugs Bunny cartoon does, you know, where it's a sort of a parody, but it's also it's also got some genuinely scary moments. So I'm going with Dr. Egon Spangler from Egon. Ghostbusters. Yeah, I Dr. Egon Spangler, he that collects mold spores and fungi. He for created fun. Yeah, for fun. Uh he created the Proton Pack and the Ghost Trap. Uh he's he's definitely the most scientific of the three. Uh the three of the first set of Ghostbusters, you know, other than Winston, because they all have PhDs. Uh, but, I, yeah, he's just the most scientifically minded of the characters. And, I don't know, he's just a lot of fun. He's He carries on a little bit of that mad scientist spirit. He's more interested in discovering the scientist, scientific aspects of the dead than really anything else. He's not as, he's not dri as driven by, you know, fame or women as uh vankman no he, he's not necessarily as into like the wacky or occult aspects as ray and the real life dan Aykroyd. and the real life dan Aykroyd, especially you know he, he more wants to see the science behind it all and uh, so for that i appreciate him and you know because of his inventions uh you know i growing up was a cleaner kid uh, one of my things that I, I would never put my dirty clothes away unless I could imagine that the dirty clothes hamper, which had a which had a pedal on the bottom that would open the lid, uh, I would push it and I would imagine that my dirty sheets were a phantom being sucked into uh, the a ghost trap. So I'm sure that my parents also thank the contributions of one Egon Spangler. I do too, and uh, I guess he's the guy most responsible for the hardware the Ghostbusters use. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. He is, yeah. Everything, all the all the cool stuff that makes the Ghostbusters the Ghostbusters, the laser beams and the, yeah. It's it's all Egon. Oh, absolutely. Well, uh, I guess that takes me to my next selection, and that's uh, Peyton Westlake. You may be asking yourselves, who is that? He's more commonly known as Dark Man. Uh, mm. And I'm specifically naming the one from the original Sam Raimi movie that was played by Liam Neeson. But who, oh, there we go. I was about to say, who is Darkman most commonly known as? Yes, Darkman. Um, if you haven't seen that movie, check it out. We're probably going to review it someday. Um, it's a great hybrid of action and horror because he's very much like the Phantom of the Opera. But his area of mad science is actually like he wants to develop an artificial skin, replace damaged tissue. And he ends up having to use it on himself. And the skin that he develops is, it's not perfected. It only lasts 99 minutes in sunlight. So and there's always a great uh, sequence of where he's having to uh, go throughout his day hiding amongst people uh, before his mask can melt. And that's really one of the earliest superhero movies as well. 
Uh, it was definitely a trendsetter. I think if that movie came out later, it'd be more well known. Because now it's not it's, it's not kind based of a on a comic or anything, but no, it's got a little bit of the shadow, Phantom of the Opera, Batman, and some mad science, and that's why I love. Them. And you know, you talk about the fl- the fl- the philanthropic aspect of. Uh, Peyton Westlake trying to make this artificial skin, and really that's what it comes down to in a lot of mad science movies or stories, is that these people initially start with good intentions. They're going to create something that changes the world. Either, you know, either they're going to defy death, or they're going to you know, make an artificial skin. Well, that's important to make the character likable. Absolutely, absolutely. But but somewhere along the line, that gets lost. That's that road to hell that's paved on good intentions. Mm-hmm. It might seem like a good idea to create this device that'll let people store things in small spaces, but then you create a black hole that sucks the whole planet inside or something. Yeah, so. typically. Typical. So it goes with science. Yeah. Who did you pick as your top? Uh, number one. I'm going with another James Whale movie. Uh, another In an H.G. Wells, Wells character that, I'm going with Dr. Jack Griffin, the Invisible Man. Who can forget? Who can forget? I I love Jack Griffin uh, mainly because of Claude Rains' just really over-the-top performance. Uh, I mean, he performs most of that movie as a disembodied voice, uh, but I I just love the image of Griffin wrapped in bandages. I love his megalomaniacal uh, ambitions, even though it doesn't really make sense that just turning himself invisible makes him believe that he's going to conquer the whole planet. It's a bit of a leap. It's a bit of a leap, you know. Yeah. An invisible man can rule the world. No one will see him come. No one will see him go. The effects in yeah, that movie are really top yeah, notch. He's, too. Yeah, he believes that even the moon is frightened of him, frightened to death. Uh, but and the the special effects in the, that that original movie are fantastic for their time. They still hold up today. Uh, and I just uh, and again, you know, just like with um, Doctor Pretorius, my enjoyment of this character does come down a lot to the over the top performance. To the point where H.G. Uh, Wells, who was still alive when that movie came out, said that he didn't quite enjoy the film uh, because he felt like James Whale had made him too much of a lunatic. And James Whale argued back, any man that would want to turn himself into a into an invisible man is a lunatic to start with. I see you're a fan of the monologuing type of mad science. I, I am. I, but, you know, I, I really do enjoy that sort of fist-clenching, monologuing... Uh, villain that just thinks very highly of himself well he should right yeah he's a genius he's done what no one else can i mean they're, they're trying to do invisible man stuff with you know ca- with backlit cameras and things now and and cloaks like ghost in the shell but this man made a serum that turned him invisible yeah there's no no change in that there was the great paul verhoeven movie <laughs> the less said about hollow man the better the less I did like the John Carpenter Chevy Chase one, which would sound terrible, but I thought it was pretty good. What is that? Is that Confessions of an Invisible Man? Uh, I think Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Daryl Hannah and Sam Neill are in it, too. Check it out, kids. Sam Neill, who finds himself in a lot of these kind of movies, too. Yes, he does. (laughs) Probably in one of the most famous ones. We'll let you all Google that. Just in case... Jurassic Park. All right then. Well, uh, so, I guess that leaves me with my top choice. Actually, Jurassic Park's a terrific segue into your choice. Yes, it is because it has the star. Well, actually, the actor, and uh, that would be Seth Brundle. He's the star of the David Cronenberg '86 remake of The Fly, and. And he's played by... He's played by Jeff Goldblum, I'm sorry. Yes. (laughs) That's the Jurassic Park connection. Yeah, there we go, kids. Um, He plays the characters similarly. Uh, There's the Jeff Goldblum school of acting, and Jeff Goldblum likes to demonstrate it in every role he's ever had. But uh, Seth Brundle is a guy who develops teleportation tech, and he accidentally teleports himself with a fly... And he goes through a horrible physical transformation of turning him from a human man to this awful, grotesque, fly-human hybrid. And it's it's a nice deviation from the uh, 58 film, because in that one he just gets like a big fly head and 
fly uh, hand. Fly. Yeah, he gets a claw. Yeah. Um, also of note with this mad science is that Cronenberg uh, said what bothered him about the original was that the fly uh, breaks his own life's work at the end of the film. And this one, Brundlefly knows that he's doomed, and but he but he's very interested in the horrible mutations going on, and he never destroys his hardware. Oh yeah, he has he has a scientist's obsession with watching his body change. Yeah, uh, and Cronenberg likened him to like the early pioneers with like radioactive isotopes. They may have died from horrible radiation sickness, like the Curies. Um, but their research was the most important thing, not their health. Uh, and the transformations in this 86 film are some of the best ever, I think, in any horror movie. The mechanical effects just still are hold up, and they're still gross to this day. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, we, we talked about how revolting the Blobs makeups were, but, man, it doesn't hold a candle to uh, the, the transformation sequences in that version of the fly yeah the, uh, they, they start out small like like he gets like these nasty hairs on his back and then it gets worse when he has his fingernails falling off his teeth falling his out his teeth fall out uh, and then it gets even bigger and bigger like his face collapses later in the movie and it's like fly mandibles it, we, get, we, we get the briefest glimpse of the interior of his medicine cabinet, which he refers to as the Seth Brundle Natural History Museum. Where yeah, it's body you, parts of himself that's fallen off. You know you see, just for the briefest second, disembodied testicles floating around in a jar of fluid. Oh, uh, I, the people who put together, like, the DVD menu had a wonderful sense of humor and have, like, the medicine cabinet as, like, the background to a menu. Those, those folks, they're... <laughs> clever ways <laughs> you want to click through that menu as quickly as possible but um Brundle... but I, I, that's, oh. a, that's a strong choice <laughs> yeah uh Brundlefly, as he eventually becomes is actually a nice segue into the main movie we're talking about today and that's, that's right my... yeah uh today we are breaking the six to twelve minute brain death barrier because we're talking about Stuart gordon's H.P. Lovecraft's Reanimator. Uh, now, as always, the secrets of life and death cannot be shared without spoilers. Nope. So we're gonna. This is gonna be chock full of them. Uh, but the movie is on Netflix Instant right now. So if you're one of those folks that doesn't want to track down a DVD, you have the time and the option to go watch that movie and come back and listen to us, or stick around and maybe we'll convince you. Reanimator follows the story of a new medical student at Miskatonic University, West. Herbert West. Herbert West. And Dr. West has created a glowing green <laughs> serum that he has with an endless supply of very sharp-looking needles uh, that can revive the dead, that can break, as he refers to it, the 6-12 minute brain-death barrier. As the... theorized by, what, Dr. Hans Gruber? Dr. Hans Gruber, that's and right. And plagiarized by Dr. Hill. And, and uh, worth pointing out, doc, the name Dr. Hans Gruber used here years before Die Hard. Yeah, um, who would have thunk it? One of those odd little coincidences. I, maybe that's just the most generic German name you can come up with. <laughs> I guess so. Hans, Karl, Gruber, who knows. But anyway, uh, Herbert has moved to Miskatonic University because he's been experimenting on animals with this serum, but now he wants to move to larger test subjects in Miskatonic University's uh, very badly guarded, poorly guarded morgue. I really think that's what he wanted to do was make use of that. Maybe you heard through the grapevine, Miskatonic has the easiest, most easily accessible morgue. Well, that and, you know, and this being an adaptation of a Lovecraft story, they're all drawn to New England and the Arkham area and Miskatonic University in particular. Uh, all evil is centered around that area. Yeah. But, uh, but he also seems to have gone there to insult a fairly famous doctor that, that, resi that uh, resides there, Dr. Hill. And who eerily looks like Secretary of State John Kerry. Uh, yeah, more I, than a little bit. <laughs> I think he was used even in like a, a a Colbert clip, 
or something. It might have been the Daily Show. Like, yeah, it was one of those. Like the likeness is extremely strong. Well, the actor that played Doctor Hill did die in 1991, so I'm not I'm not convinced that John Kerry might not just be Doctor Hill with reagent in his body again. So. <laughs> Oh my god, creepy theories already? It's possible. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I'm just saying it's possible. Well, so anyways, uh, Herbert West is now roommates with uh, med student Kane. Dan Kane. Dan Kane. No relation to Dean Kane. Uh, Med student Dan Kane, who is spending a lot of time with his girlfriend, Megan. Megan Halsey, who is the daughter of the Dean. Which is which I only bring up because once West starts his loopy experiments in the basement, uh, namely killing their cat, uh. stuffing it in a freezer and telling them I just found it dead, <laughs> uh, and never... being very he's very pissed off at the girl for being upset about her dead cat too. That's part of one of my favorite things about West's character, but we'll get to that soon. Uh, yeah, he's, but he's just, he's kind of an immoral guy. He's a bit of a jerk. He doesn't really care about anything other than the pursuit of his, of his, uh, of his knowledge. And that includes, you know, killing someone's cat and stuffing it full of goo. Hey, they never prove, and Wes (laughs) never admits, and they never show that he killed the cat. That's right. But, but through this experiment with the cat, Dan Kane is able to see there's some legitimacy to Herbert West science. And yeah, he wants a part of it. He's not messing around with b- conquering brain death. As Herbert would put it. Uh, but of course, the trouble with this serum is that anything it brings back is completely stark raving insane. And murderous, for some reason. Murderous and usually just covered in blood. <laughs> it's Puking it up, squirting it from your eyeballs or whatever. Yeah, it, Something horrible. Yeah, if you overdose, your eyeballs explode. Yeah. It's... It's it's always awful. Even even the cat becomes this feral monstrosity with its guts hanging out. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, in, in within the university, unfortunately, Megan's father is killed while he when he walks in on one of their experiments with a corpse. Uh, and then and the, the secret of the reagent gets out to the rival Doctor Hill. Mm-hmm. Doctor Hill, who was rightly called a plagiarist. Because his plan is to steal Herbert West's new reagent idea and patent it as his own. And he tells West that he's going to do this. But he'll politely use West as his assistant and assures him that he'll get rich in the process. Herbert wants none of that. Uh, (laughs) Death by shovel. That seems to be a reoccurring theme in Stuart Gordon movies. Yes. He loves shovel decapitation. There was uh, a shovel gag in uh, Day of the Dead. Same year. Huh. Coincidence, eh? And naturally, West's ego gets in the way because he decides that he's going to revive Dr. Hill using his reagent to brag about how right he was and because it's probably the freshest corpse he's had access to. Well, other than the Dean. But you can't use the scientific method unless you can do multiple tests. That's right. But the... Uh, the corpse of Dr. Hill escapes because this serum is so good that body and head separated can act independently. So Dr. Hill takes what's left of the reagent, goes to Miskatonic U, you know, decapitated, carrying his head around in a tray, and revives a bunch of bodies and causes a lot of havoc. And that's the plot. This is a movie that has, I guess it satisfies, more than satisfies the old Howard Hawks rule. Like, have your movie have at least three great scenes and no boring ones. Because there's nothing boring in this movie. It just goes right to it. It's about 80 minutes long. Um, unless you watch the director's cut, which did add in a bunch of mostly useless dialogue sequences. But uh, this movie has tons of great gore effect sequences. We already mentioned the, the shovel to the head. Oh, it, it that's brutal. Oh my gosh, uh... Because that, that is not, again, that's not something they cut away from. Like, you see the shovel buried in Dr. Hill's neck, and Herbert kicks it just to get that extra little umph to cut it clean. There's a lot of dark comedy to it, which is 
Well, honestly, this being a Lovecraft story, it's kind of surprising, but that's the way Lovecraft intended the story on which this is based as well. Um, as much as loose of an adaptation, this I think I think Lovecraft probably would have enjoyed this movie. In his own way. In his own way. <laughs> In his own way. It, it's, I mean, it's like the, um, the Roger Corman Raven movie. How can you turn the Raven into a movie? And Roger Corman made it like a comedy mm-hmm. with Vincent Price and Peter Lorre. And you know, and this is the only Lovecraft story that was printed in, co- in a comedy magazine. Yeah. So, so it, it was his parody of Frankenstein. This was not supposed to be like a loose adaptation, was it? No, no. It was supposed to be a period piece. Uh, Stuart Gordon had really intended to do this, you know, the right way. Like he went, at first, it was going to be a stage production, and then he decided he was going to make a thirty-minute TV pilot. And he and his friend uh, Dennis Paoli, who wrote this movie's screenplay and writes a lot of the screenplays for Stuart Gordon now. Uh, they had intended this to be as straight as possible because even the stories, I mean, if you read them now, they're all collected together because they're all about a, two pages and a half long because mm-hmm. uh, because it's broken up into six serial parts of different instances in Herbert West's attempts to use his formula to resurrect the dead. And, you know, and we also have a nameless narrator who describes everything. And in this story, it's Dan Kane. Yeah, Dan. Uh, in the movie, movie, it's Dan Kane. But yeah, it was intended to be a TV series because he wanted to do a period piece uh, that reflected the different serial stories. But he was convinced by some people in Hollywood that their only market for horror in the 1980s was in a movie theater. It was it was in Hollywood movies, not in television, not on stage, barely even in literature. So. Yeah. Wait, was uh, Tales from the Crypt on TV by this time, or was that uh, later? That, that was later. That was in the 90s. Okay. Yeah, so, th- so this was this was the time, you know, this was the age of VHS tapes and... The glorious age. Glorious age of VHS, but you needed to make a movie. And so, the, so they took all the ideas they had and just condensed them into 86 minutes when it was originally going to be a 13-episode TV series. What helps make this movie a classic is Jeffrey Combs. He's hilarious, and he's like a jackass. He's just completely and totally dedicated to his work. And he has such a memorable voice. It's hard not to try to impersonate him whenever you say one of the lines of dialogue. And you know, it's and it's kind of great. Uh, Jeffrey Combs is a real throwback to that era of movie villains I was talking about earlier with, you know, Doctor Pretorius and Doctor Frankenstein, or even even the likes of Vincent Price, where the actors' performances were so much about like having a distinctive sounding voice and having a distinctive look. Uh, you know, th- but. Increasingly, at this time in the 80s and beyond, uh, are, most of the slashers, are other than Freddy Krueger, don't really say anything. They're, they're delivery devices for machetes to the net. Like, when he just shows up on screen, you know exactly who he is, you know exactly what he wants to do, and you just have a great idea of his personality. And when he first meets Dr. Hill, he doesn't like say hi or anything, he just says, oh, you plagiarized Dr. Gruber. Your work is your work is so derivative that people in Europe say it's plagiarism. Uh, I I just enjoy watching him try to dress down Doctor Hill so much. Uh, that, actually, those two have a lot of chemistry because they both play big. So any scene they're in together is a blast. Uh, <laughs> they really can't stand each other, and West is like this diminutive, you know, tiny guy, and Doctor Hill's an old, just a tall old guy like John Kerry. Yes. I guess that would make uh, Herbert West a Dennis Kucinich. <laughs> That's a, you know, you might have to Google him. He's sort of a historical footnote now. But uh, also enjoyable is the interaction between West and Dan Kane, who sort of becomes his faithful sidekick. Yeah, they have a great like comedy and straight man routine in a way. Yeah, uh, you know, it's it's very funny watching them wrestle with the cat puppet (laughs) yes when uh, herbert is experimenting on rufus the once dead cat it's like obviously a a puppet cat strapped to uh jeffrey combs back and then (laughs) he's just throwing a stuffed animal around and then west does after that he does a major look to him and i mean dan is dan pretty much joins in and all the awful stuff from then on like even though he even though he knows it's terrible that West came and killed their cat, 
Well, he gets won over by the the effects of the reagent. But but also they they kind of established that Dan is something of a softy that has a hard time letting any patient die. Mm-hmm. Like you know earlier on in the movie he's he's pumping he's pumping the chest of someone who is is done for. The, there's no way to revive them. So you know perhaps he you know perhaps he's thinking of the philanthropic aspect of what the reagent could do if they could get it into hospitals and save people right after they died. Whereas West doesn't really seem to care about any of that. West's interests are. Not so philanthropic, and not even for fame or fortune. He just seems to want to do it just so that he can possess the knowledge of how to do it. And, and, he, and he only gets incensed about it when Dr. Hill decides that he's going to get famous off of it. And I think even then, that's just out of the outrage of, this is my idea, and I'm not going to let you do to me what you did to the great Dr. Gruber. Oh man, when, once they get to the point of reanimating the corpse in the morgue. <laughs> yeah, um... It's their first human subject. Because the first human subject in the movie was Dr. Gruber. Yeah, he's he's in the prologue, and we all we see is Dr. Gruber's eyes exploding as he screams, and people walk in, and West is just like, I gave him too much! I overdosed him! The dose was too large! I gave him life. That's right, he refuses to... People are like, you killed him! No, no! Yeah, the, the they inject a corpse in the morgue. Who happens to be, what, Arnold Schwarzenegger's body double at the time. Yeah. So he's a very muscular man, and this is, uh, other than Dr. Hill and Dean Halsey, almost every revived revived corpse is completely naked. <laughs> yeah, like, there's something extra icky about naked, ble- bleeding zombies. Like, this they're is an icky con- movie. They're always convenient shadows over the genitals, but... Yeah, uh, the damage is done. Damage is done. It's, it is, as you said, it's icky. We're so used to zombies in tattered clothing that seeing them here... We don't think about undead genitalia. But these zombies are so disinterested in eating. They're just they don't, murderous. They're just murder, And that's that's another carryover from the Lovecraft story. Uh, you know, Lovecraft, Lovecraft obviously wrote that in a time before Romero, or before a lot of the tropes. So in a way, he's kind of a trope setter himself. Uh, I remember memorably in, in one of the... In, I think it's the second story of the plague about the plague where uh, they he resurrects Dean Halsey in that story but in the story in the book he died of natural causes and you know allegedly Dean Halsey's body tried to bury itself back into its own grave again out of like just complete madness and fear of what it what it had become mm. uh, you know and in the in the book West in the, you know is eventually ripped apart by his own creations but, uh, they kind of duplicate that with a different character in the movie. Someone does get torn limb from limb at the very end. But yeah, these are so these are not zombies as we typically know them. These are just their 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 goal is literally just to fling you against walls really hard or to smash your head in. Or just lift you up by your throat like Darth Vader style and strangle you. Yeah. Um, Dan and West have this hilarious fight with. Uh, the first uh, revival they have, and he, like, knocks down the, the zombie. We'll just refer to him as a zombie. He, like, knocks down this heavy steel door from the morgue and crushes uh, Dean Halsey. With a double stomp. <laughs> yeah, and then he stomps on it. It's like he was well aware that a person was underneath. I don't know. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. Those things just love to kill. <laughs> and I love how uh, Wes takes out the first zombie he uses the bone saw through the chest oh and they they just let it slowly emerge from that chest <sighs> oh it's nasty and it's yeah. bloody yeah again these you know since these aren't technically zombies they can be taken out a little more easily than the average zombie if you did so in this case he takes the heart out of its body yeah. now that that logic flies out the window once dr hill comes back <laughs> but... yeah like you gotta suspend your disbelief to really enjoy this movie. Like, Dr. Hill's head doesn't need lungs or really anything except some blood in his tray that he sits in. It, it reaches around like a cartoon character. Yeah. Like, like, whenever you see a character get their head chopped off in a cartoon, how they're usually groping around trying to find their own head to put it back on, that's exactly what we have here. In many ways, this is kind of a cartoon. Oh yeah, and I and I think that's why you know it's so enjoyable. It doesn't try it doesn't try to be taken seriously. Like it it knows how ridiculous this is, and it loves it loves giving it to us. 
Mm-hmm. It's a fun time. Fun 80-minute movie. Um, in fact, this is one of the only movies, when I first rented the VHS years ago, when I still had a VCR, and I'd never seen it, I had to watch this movie pretty much like 10 minutes after I finished it. Yeah, and uh, what are some other... Like just, I mean, you can just go on and on about the great gore scenes, but this movie does have a little bit of uh, foreshadowing. Like, Dan in his apartment has a Talking Heads poster. And he's having sex with his girlfriend, the Dean's daughter, right under it. Yes, but how does that come back, I wonder? Well, you know, we have a Talking Head, uh, in, you know, in Dr. Hill, who, you know, is pretty... Was before Just before then, we see him... Uh, walking around the hospital in a fake wax uh, anatomy dummy head. That's one of the few carryovers from the Lovecraft story. That's right. It, there was yeah, there was just a, one of the corpses had walked around with a fake head. Doctor Hill has a very even before he's undead, he has a very sick obsession with the dean's daughter Megan, uh, played by Barbara Crampton, who. Goes on to be a bit of a scream queen and is making a comeback lately in movies like You're Next and Lords of Salem. But he he just like it's it's very clear that he really wants to have sex with this much younger girl. Yeah, um, and there's a director's cut of Reanimator, which is not the preferred cut. It's just a bunch of non-gore scenes added into the movie, and uh, the only ones that are really significant are uh, Doctor Hill. Uh, occasionally hypnotizing people, and most of the time he's hypnotizing Dean Halsey. Kind of like uh, Aladdin. Yeah, he's very Jafar. Yes, that would make uh, Dean Halsey uh, the Sultan. Which, you know, again, Lovecraft carryover. Every time uh, Dean Halsey is mentioned, uh, the narrator in the Lovecraft story has to remind us he was a very benevolent and kind Dean. So, um, the scene where Dean Halsey dismisses uh, Dan Kane. They actually lead up to that in the director's cut. Like, they give you a good idea that he's been hypnotized enough by at this point. See, in the in the movie, it's it's just because, well, he's dead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's so I mean we the only the only scene we get of you know the that doesn't involve the hypnotizing of Dean Halsey and Doctor Hill is just this weird scene where Megan walks in and. Dr. Hill kind of just makes these weird advances at her. This may be totally inconsequential, but in the director's cut, you have a toast scene with Dr. Hill and Kane and Halsley, and the only one who toasts with water is Dan, and that's a sign of bad luck, typically. And that's when his luck in the movie horribly changes. So I always wondered if that was intentional or not. Probably. Yeah. Well, you know, but yeah, this. So we talked about the Talking Heads poster and sex. How does that come into this movie? And it comes into this in the, with the movie's most outrageous, most memorable scene. The head, which, which is yeah, the that the, that Megan Halsey has been captured by the body of Doctor Hill, taken to the morgue, strapped to a table, stripped of her clothing. And the head of Dr. Hill sort of just says, I've always liked you. I've always admired your beauty. And it proceeds, like, the, the body picks up the head and just drags it around to different parts of her body and just proceeds to lick her nipples. Oh, Lord. And blood is just pulling from the bottom of his throat and pouring all over her body. And the, the body's clearly getting some enjoyment out of this. Mm-hmm. And in the most awful scene, he decides he's going to give her the most pleasure he can. So he he drags his head down between her legs and comes within an inch before he's interrupted. It's kind of, uh, it's a little extra disturbing because her zombified, lobotomized dad is standing right next to him. <laughs> And uh, the actress doesn't do, like, the greatest job in the world in the movie, but I will say in this sequence, she really looks freaked out and grossed out. I would think it would be impossible not to be. Yeah. To do. <laughs> I don't know if she was acting at that scene. <laughs> no! 
That, that's still Hor- very, it's horrible. That's a very unpleasant acting job. I mean, I'm sure it's uncomfortable to be naked in a movie anyway, but to have a, but to have a uh, you know built up model corpse sticking a head between your legs is probably not the most comfortable. You job. learn to uh, to appreciate me. West interrupts in I guess his his one heroic moment, but I wouldn't even say it's heroic because again he's just there to insult Doctor Who. <laughs> The secrets of life and death, and you're trysting with a bubble-headed co-ed? <laughs> Only Jeffrey Combs can say it as well as he does. And uh, uh, But he, but here we get the best line in the movie. You'll never get credit for my discovery. Who's going to believe a talking head? Get a job in a sideshow. <laughs> I also really like the, uh, the security guard for the morgue. <laughs> he really doesn't care that much about his job, but... But he's a very pleasant guy. You know, I know, he's, he's a guy of... you could hang out with. And <laughs> But anything could be happening in there. He's not going to go in there. No. And, uh, like, at the end of the movie, there's, like, a head thrown his way. And he just looks at what's going on inside. And there's a ton of zombies that Dr. Hills made. And he's also lobotomized for his own mind control purposes. He just looks in there, the security guard. He goes, the hell with this? And hightails yeah. it out of there. Yet another movie that subverts the theory of the black guy always dying first in a horror movie. This guy is smart enough to take to just pick up his losses and go. <laughs> yep. He he's quit better jobs than this. It's like a head getting crushed between hands, and blood squirting everywhere. You know, it, this is this leads to my one of my questions because right after this, uh, Doctor Hill shows off that he has somehow captured a power to mind control all of the revived bodies yeah i'm I'm guessing that if they had left in the hypnosis sequences it would have made a little more sense but i I mean they they make an effort to show us that like dr hill's one invention that he didn't plagiarize was a was a laser that could could help lobotomize people yeah very efficiently very efficiently and so they they show the lobotomy marks on all the revived corpses and he mentions how that makes them a little more pliable but still like they're they are somehow psychically connected to him yeah it's like he just has no issues i mean maybe he's perfected into one technique i actually like that the hypnosis scenes are left out and that he mentions the uh his lobotomy lobotomy technique yeah it's a nice little extra surprise at the end. Sure, sure. But I yeah, mean, for, what, for whatever reason, he is able to just move these things to his will. And By this time, I'm, I'm done asking questions about it because he is breathing without lungs. <laughs> right. Right, yeah. He's talking with probably half of his vocal cords still in the body. Yeah. So it's, it, it's not really a movie to ask questions, but if I had one, that's the question. Uh, Perfectly valid. I think so. But... And I bring that up because when he's defeated, well, like, like all the bodies seem to feel it. Yeah, they all kind of, like, scream at the same time. Do they have the same brain matter? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But whatever, for whatever reason, it's enough. And again, by the way, naked corpses. <laughs> oh, man, they're all, like, all over the actors, and it's so nasty. There's just like six naked zombies trying to pull at the actors. It's so outrageous. Um, and I love West. His final experiment of the movie is to try overdose, as he yells. <laughs> and he has like two giant syringes totally full of reagent. And what it does is it makes Dr. Hill's like intestines have a mind of their own. <laughs> and they like grab him like a giant tentacle. And then West just kind of disappears. Yeah. We're to, we're to presume he's died in this movie, but... He dies in the novel. Or the he does. But yeah, he's well, in, a, in a different set of circumstances, yeah, he... ...to pieces. Yeah. But this being a serious... You know, this this being a Hollywood horror movie, there is no way that he's gonna they're going to let the major character die so soon. Nah. Because as we know, he comes back in the second movie... You know, the last we've seen him, he's being pulled in by Dr. Hill's guts, but he delivers one really punny line. Yeah, someone asked him, how come Dr. Hill didn't kill you? He goes, he didn't have the guts. <laughs> That's the only explanation we will ever need. So we are, yeah, we are kind of leading into the also very entertaining sequel, Bride of Reanimator. Anyways, I mean, there's a couple things in the movie we didn't 
totally love. No. Um, my main issue with the movie is the score. Now, as anyone who's seen Psycho would immediately know that the score for Reanimator is, well, as it's totally plagiarized. Well, you know, and I, and I heard that the, uh, this probably is due to the fact that the guy they'd hired to compose it was weeks behind to the point where he was starting to pay for the score, starting to pay to make the score out from his own pocket. Oh. So, so that might have been why they just went with some stock music that the studio probably had. Hey, I mean, they, they added a little bit extra in there. They added a little bit of an 80s twist to it. Yeah, 80s psycho. Yeah. It's very much uh, Vanilla Ice, you know, passing off how how his uh, how Ice Ice Baby was different than Under Pressure because of that extra little dung <laughs> in the ding 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 ding. Totally different. Totally um, different. And here it is too. Totally different. But if if I really had a problem with a movie, it'd be pretty much it. I I would say if I had any problems, it would be if the scenes that you described with hypnotism and all that were left in. Like yeah. it, otherwise, it's it's pretty tight. I mean, there are only three sets. You you have Doctor Hill's office, the morgue, and uh, Dan Kane's house. Yeah, I, well, when you have a tiny budget, that's the best you can do. And when you have a lot of effects in it too, I'm I'm to this day I'm still impressed what the effects department did. Oh yeah, well I mean the the makeup artist described how before this movie he'd only ever used two gallons of fake blood for a single movie. With Reanimator, he used 25 gallons. But I think they, I think you could see how much love and effort went into it. Yeah. Uh, like I, I love that you know that they at some points when the head is carrying the body, you can you can definitely tell that Doctor the actor playing Doctor Hill's head is poking through like the chest so that he gets. But but that but that's a lot of effort on the actor's part and on the special effects crew's part, and I think they all deliver admirably. A bunch of real. You know, for the most part, no-name actors. I mean, Jeffrey Combs is famous. He's he's famous in a way like Bruce Campbell's famous. Mm-hmm. You know, and and mainly for this movie. Oh yeah, um, he played Reanimator this, two more times. This this is his Evil Dead. Yeah, Stuart Gordon and Jeffrey Combs really would like to do a fourth Reanimator, and I think it's high time for it. It's been ten years since the last one. Yeah, there was originally plans for. Uh... A movie in which Dr. West would save the president after he had a heart attack. Yeah, I think William H. Macy was going to play the president. Yeah, and it was going to be like one of those insane reagent corpses ruling America. I think it's an outrageous idea that's befitting the franchise. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, before they get to any more Lovecraft work, and to be sure, uh, Stuart Gordon's worked on quite a few Lovecraft movies other than this one. Uh, you know, he made From Beyond, which is even even looser an adaptation and even more horrifying. Oh, <laughs> uh, that is one of it is one of the top nastiest body horror movies I can think of. Like it's it, a movie you, you and I have a hard time stomaching, and we're pretty it, desensitized. It outflies the fly, you know. Yeah, <laughs> that's how that's how brutal that is. And, and most also, of the same cast from Reanimator too. Yeah. Yeah, including Jeffrey Combs. Yeah. And then he made an, uh, he made fairly recently a uh, an adaptation of Dagon, which is based on the story Shadow over Innsmouth, with uh, Dagon being one of the Elder Gods. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really, it's the first of those movies to use an Elder God, uh, because neither Herbert, you know, neither neither Herbert West Reanimator nor From Beyond really used the Elder God uh, cycle as we know it or the Cthulhu mythos, or anything like that. But Shadow Over, Ensmith and Dagon definitely do. So if that's the side of Lovecraft you're interested in, go check that one out. So how would you, what would you say to do with Reanimator? Is it a classic? Oh, I would Some... say it's it's an absolute classic. Yeah. It's I, it's a movie I very much enjoy. And again, you know, as we said at the top of the show, if Herbert West was allowed to have been on our list, he probably would have been very close to the top. Uh, totally. He's that and memorable. And I, you know, I enjoy I enjoy Lovecraft's story, but I I enjoy the movie more. Jeffrey Combs takes Herbert West, makes it his own. Stuart Gordon delivers a really just tight, well paced, fun, schlocky horror picture, and and they know it, and they're okay with it, and you know, and for that reason, I can embrace it the same way. Yeah. Um, I, I I say this is a must see. Buy it, rent it, go watch it on Netflix Instant. It's right there. <laughs> there are so many ways to enjoy this movie legally. Mm-hmm. So many ways to enjoy it. That's right. Totally. Uh, you know, and I, I want to give a shout out too because, as I said, you know, the Stuart Gordon and uh, Jeffrey Combs 
have moved from Lovecraft to another very famous uh, literary horror author. Uh, for the last few years, Jeffrey Combs has been doing a one-man show in Los Angeles mainly, although it's toured a little bit, where he's been playing... Edgar Allan Ed, Poe, right? Ed, Edgar Allan Poe, yeah. And uh, right now, he and Stuart Gordon are trying to finance a movie based on Edgar Allan Poe's life and stories, uh, which they're kickstarting. By the time you hear that, I don't know if the Kickstarter will still be open or not, but I hope they fund it because I would really love to see what those two can do. Same here. Um, I think it'd be about a billion times better than that John Cusack movie. That terrible, terrible John. Oh Cusack. my God! I don't mean, Less said, the better. Feel I free. believe it's called. I believe it's called Nevermore. So just search Nevermore Stuart Gordon Kickstarter, and I'm sure you'll find it. I guess uh, Jeffrey Combs would make a good drugged out Poe. Oh yeah. Uh, well, and uh, my understanding is during the uh, stage show, he gets progressively more and more drunk and belligerent. But uh, next week, we're changing mm-hmm. things up a bit, aren't we? Oh yeah. Uh, well. You know, as we said, this has kind of been our October month, and our plan was to do an all-horror month, but... Opportunities arise. Opportunities arise, and if Sylvester Stallone or Arnold Schwarzenegger make a movie, you have to go see it and make a recording about it. But if they are both in the same movie, then you've really got to do it. It's going to be Escape Plan coming out uh, this coming Friday. That's right. So we're going to go see that. It doesn't look half bad. I'm looking forward to seeing it, actually. I am really, really cautious about this one just because I have not really enjoyed either man's output in a couple years, especially when they were together in The Expendables. But I that's don't a, count that garbage. Well, that's a talk for another day because I'm sure you and I could go on and on about those. Yes, but just said, yeah, Expendables sucks. I'm sorry. <laughs> More details coming in a future episode. Oh, we can back up that uh, that claim. Trust us. But for, yeah, for now we're we're excited to be going to see the the uh, escape plan, yeah. and then in the week after that, trick or treat. Trick or treat! Can't wait for both. Well, um, I'm Burton Cody. I'm Casey Mitchum. And this has been Bloodbath and Beyond. Thanks for listening. Uh, share it with your friends. Tell us what you think. Can't. We're wait now to- on iTunes. We're now on iTunes. So go to subscribe to us on iTunes. We're easy to find. Type Bloodbath and Beyond. We are the only result with that, I'm sure. We're not the Guar song. I think that's the only result that has our name on it. It's like a ah. Guar song. We're the only show called Bloodbath and Beyond. Yeah, so go find us on iTunes. Rate, review, subscribe. That helps our metrics. That gets people to look at our show that might not even know us. Yeah. So, but if you have sat through, thank you. And uh, you'll hear from us soon. Later, guys. Stay bloody. Once you wake up the dead, you've got a real mess on your hands. He's dead? Not anymore. You'll never get credit for my discovery. Who's going to believe a talking head? Get a job in a sideshow. It will scare you to pieces.